Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Good morning. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I'm the pastor of education at Rio Vista, and I am the headmaster at Bethany Christian School. And I want to take a moment just to say, as the largest outreach ministry, when I get to come up here and look around at all the different faces and shepherds that do so much in ministry and investment and loving their students and their families and walking with them through hurts and struggles. This is a phenomenal team of shepherds. And I want to invite each and every one of you, not just today for a dedication and a commissioning, but throughout this year to pray for our team, to pray for our ministry, to pray that God would open doors, to bring His hope, His love, His goodness into these families. As you heard my beautiful wife read Psalm 32, or if you've done your personal worship this week already, you know that this psalm is about forgiveness. It's about repentance. It's about confession. And what David is trying to, to help us to understand, and the Lord through David is trying to help us to understand, is something that's counterintuitive to us. We don't like presenting all of our flaws. We don't like putting them on display. But David is coming to us and he's teaching us that it is precisely that. It's precisely your repentance and your confession that leads to things like joy and strength and relief and liberty, freedom. And you ask, how does that come with confession? And here it is. Because confession, repentance, seeking forgiveness requires us to take all the ways that we try to hide ourselves, all the ways that we try to prove ourselves to the watching world, to prove ourselves to our own hearts, to, to do all that. It requires us to lay all of that down, to stand before God with all of our flaws and all of our mess and anxieties and fears to stand before God and then to come to the realization that we are utterly secure in Him. Even still. You know, oftentimes if we're honest, 
we want to hide. I titled this sermon, David picks up on this midway, you are my hiding place. But in reality, what do we do? We, we want to build lives around ourselves and make so much of what's in the world our hiding place, don't we? We want to hide behind our reputation or our money or our deeds or some amazing thing we did or our family. Some of these are good things. We want to hide behind our good deeds so that everybody who looks at us, they won't know how rotten we are on the other side of this wall that we present. They'll never know our secrets. They'll never know our flaws. All those things that are shamed because we've built this wall and we slave away constantly to make sure that there's never any crack where anyone could see just how broken we actually are. And all those efforts are exhausting and lonely. I remember when I was going through seminary, <laughs> I was a very good pretender. I'm still a pretty good pretender, let's be honest. But I remember going to church one time and I was climbing the ranks of a ministry that I was involved in and nobody knew some of the things that I was struggling with at the time and I wanted to make sure that they never knew. We went to a church service and I was sitting right next to my boss, a godly man by the name of Tom Rogerberg, and this pastor preached a message on the beauty of what Christ has done for us. How much and how desperately He loves us. And how crazy it is, how ungrateful it is to then turn from all that He's given us to say, no, thanks for that. I'm going to go ahead and live for my own stuff. I'm going to live for my own identity and my own strength and my own, my own, my own, my own. And He said, how crazy when you have this wonderful God who delights over you. And he, as He's talking, I'm realizing... I'm doing all of this. I'm hiding all of this. My life is a sham. No one can see me. I feel so lonely. I feel so hypocritical. And that sermon, the weight of it just caused me to sit in my seat and sob into a puddle of tears. And my boss, who apparently didn't think the sermon was, was so powerful, <laughs> is looking at me like, what in the world is wrong with you? And it eventually got like, it got ugly sobbing. To where I had, uh, hello, okay, I heard you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, so, but it got ugly something to where I had to get up and go outside of the church and you want to know what? It was wonderful. There's so often where I wish that my heart could be that tender again. Right now. Because the most dangerous place for a Christian to be is in that place where we've got it figured out. I'm not so sensitive. I'm not so tender. I don't need to be vulnerable for the Lord because I've got it figured out. Ooh, that's a dangerous place. But to be vulnerable and open and broken and free to lay it all down before Him, wow, that is powerful. That's when you get a glimpse of how amazing his love is. David starts this psalm. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And you'll notice that David doesn't start the psalm saying, Blessed are those who do not sin or who have no transgressions. So he calls us out right out of the gate. He knows everybody's a sin. There's no such person apart from Jesus 
Who does not sin? Who doesn't have these transgressions? Who aren't self-deceived, right? Who don't come with bags of iniquity. But he comes and says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. There it is again. That sense of being able to hide, to cover, to blot out. But who does the hiding here? It's God, it's Christ who comes and covers our sins. And the same sinners that David opens this psalm talking to at the end of the psalm, he's going to refer to these same guys and ladies as you righteous, O righteous ones, the upright in heart. That's who we are in Christ. But you notice how David what he says here he says but when i kept silence my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long can you go there like because when we think of repentance let me let me tell you how we tend to think of repentance we tend to think of repentance as oh i did this particular thing that violated the 10 commandments and therefore i need to go and lay that down before god and ask forgiveness But the sin that plagues us all day long is the sin of identity. Where we find our hope, where we find our identity, whether or not we believe the promise of God, right? So here you have the Lord and all of His glory and kindness and wonderfulness and love and every other attribute that He has and He comes to me and He says, Hey Sam, This is how precious you are to me. And all of this inheritance is yours because I love you. This is how I see you. This is how safe you are. This is all that you have in me. And I then take that, go out into my life and say, I'll just go ahead and do it on my own. I'll find my identity in my reputation. I'll find my identity in what people say about me. I'll find my identity in what my heart says. And I go through the, this world, and in the ways that I reject all that God has said to me, I'm sinning against Him. I am seeking to find my hiding place in all the things of the world. And I'm rejecting a God who says, come, let me be your hiding place. Let me be where you take refuge from the effects of a fallen world. And so that's the question that we wrestle with. Do we define our lives by our deeds and desires or by His? One's going to lead to exhaustion. It's going to wear us out. We're constantly going to be having to strive to make sure that we keep our walls up. And the other one has an infinite God who comes and frees us of that. And allows us to live in joy. In verse 1, David tells us that the blessed man's sin is covered. But you'll notice in verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. It's not David who covers his sin. It's not fig leaves that cover his sin. It is purely, purely the Lord. But you'll notice David, when, when he says, when I, when I was covering my sin, my bones wasted away. I needed a hiding place. And finally, you broke through to the point where I was willing to not cover my iniquity. And I came before you, and I, was, I laid it all bare. 
I showed you my fears, God. I showed you my anxieties. I showed you all the ways that I have failed and been ashamed and the ways that I've fallen way short of what you deserved. And when David takes that step to go before the Lord and to do that, God forgives him of all of his iniquity. We tend to see forgiveness and repentance almost transactionally. Yeah, God, okay, let me think. Uh, it's bedtime, so I probably should just... Uh, let's see, what did I do today? Well, I did that. and Yeah, I didn't love my wife like I should have. And I did yell at Caleb and... Oh, what else? Um, well, I got angry at the salesman. Uh, what else? Like, and then we just put the, like, the coin in the vending machine and out comes God's forgiveness. No. If you go to the Lord with that shallow level of your repentance and confession, you're missing the point of what's going on in that moment. This is not a vending machine forgiveness God. This is a God who is infinitely passionate about you infinitely in love with you, infinitely desiring your best. When I, Laura and I were dating, my wife, when Laura and I were dating, we were like, we only dated, we, we were dated for five months, we were engaged for five months, and bam, we were married, and then Caleb, she became pregnant, and five months, like five months was our kind of deal. <laughs> but it was quick. We both knew, we were in love right away. And I remember one day as we were creeping up toward that day where I was planning on proposing, Laura, who worked on the first floor of the building, I worked on the fourth floor of the building, Laura walks into my office at the time, 11 years ago, with an envelope. She's got a real heavy look on her face, downcast. Walks up, can hardly make eye contact with me lays the envelope down on my desk and walks out. And everything in me went, Ugh. is she really breaking up with me via envelope? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so as soon as she left, I was like, Whoosh. and I took out a two-page letter. And in that letter, whew, she shared with me all of the places in her life where she feels insecure. All of her flaws. All the places where she feels unlovely. And she closed the second page of that letter saying, I hope that in spite of all of my flaws, you can still love me. Do you know how flooded with gratitude I felt? What a gift. She trusted my love enough to come before me and lay it all down and to trust me with her wounds. And in an instant, what did my heart do? It just went and swelled. And I left my desk and went down the four floors of stairs, met her at her desk, and without saying a word, just embraced her and we both got stupid. <laughs> But let me tell you this. That was, a, that was a powerful reaction. Multiply that response 
by infinity. And you find God's infinite delight in seeing you come to Him in repentance. In seeing you come to Him and saying, Lord, I'm a mess. But I trust you with this. And this God who loves you infinitely rejoices. He loves to be your hiding place. He's not a hiding place that just passively welcomes you in. When we get to verse 7 of this psalm, you find David saying, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is not a God when you come to Him in shame and embarrassment and failure and flaw and anxiety. He's not a God who just delivers the transactional, you're forgiven. This is a God who sings and delights and rushes out and surrounds you. In the middle of your weakness, this God protects you. He becomes your hiding place. He becomes your wall. He says, tear down all those things that you thought you needed to make your identity with. Rip them down. I'm here. Let me be the one who surrounds you. Let me be the one who protects you. Let me be the one who gives you an identity and a value and a worth. For steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. When I go to Him with my repentance, He doesn't sigh. Again, Sam, the same struggle? All right. Nope. He surrounds me with song. He's a defender. And that should be how the body of Christ is. To sinners who are falling apart, whether it's inside of our walls or coming from outside of our walls, or just when we go to those outside of our walls, those that are broken, who have the most notorious sin, who are the most shamed, who are the, big, the farthest outcast. If we are like our God, when they come into brokenness, what should our response be? Huh, to love them, to surround them, to protect them, to sing over them, and to make sure that as their tears and mourning are coming down, that we let them know that when they find their refuge in Christ, then they have every reason to do as David instructs them to do. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you just hear me? Didn't you just hear all my sins? Yeah. Covered. Rejoice. Be glad, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's how the church should be going after the broken. This year, Bethany, at Bethany, our theme focuses on this very topic. It's finding our security in Christ. And our verse for this year is one of my very favorites in all of Scripture. It comes from Nehemiah 8.10. And it says this, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that, if we could grab hold of that verse in our everyday lives, it would transform the way we lived and walked. But to understand the power of that verse, I want to walk you through a little bit of the story of Nehemiah. 
See, Nehemiah lived around 450 years before Christ. He lived 150 years after the Babylonians had come to Jerusalem and had torn it down. The, the Israelites at that time had gotten so wicked, the kings were burning their sons in the fires. The God is sending prophets saying, please come back to me. Please turn back to me. And they said, no, we got it. We're, we're good on our own. We don't want you. And they pursued all their own selfish interests. And so God gives them over to foreigners. The Babylonians come, destroy the temple, burn it down, tear down the walls, take all the people into exile. And Israel becomes a byword among the nations. A shame. And 150 years go by. And Nehemiah, who's hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, now living in exile under the Persians, is serving the Persian king Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer, which gives him high standing. A cupbearer in the ancient world, this guy is exceptionally trusted because the whole role of a cupbearer is to do what? As the king is receiving his wine or drink, the cupbearer tastes it. And if he doesn't die, the king can drink it. But his whole job is basically to die. Maybe. But to do that for a king. So he's super well respected. And he knows that a party had gone to Jerusalem, that they were supposed to have this rebuilt, that the temple was going up even though it was shabby. But they're hoping that this is going to be rebuilt, that God is going to once, come, once again come and dwell in the temple and be with them and restore Israel and all of their hopes. And so Nehemiah is hoping, hoping, hoping. And then a party comes back from Jerusalem. Nehemiah rushes to him. How's it going? And they say, it's not good. City's in total ruins. And Nehemiah just weeps and mourns. And he goes to God and he tries to make a, a deal with God, basically. He calls God out on his promise. And, and so like, think of Israel, your life. He goes before the Lord. The, and he says, hey God, I, like, I know that in the, in the law that you gave to Moses, you said that if we ever spat in your face and rebelled against you and pursued our own wicked ways, that you would send us off into the world as exiles. Well, check. We were wicked. Check. You sent us off as, into exile. But God, you also promised that if we turned back to you, if we obeyed your law and your commandments, then you would gather us from the farthest places under heaven into a city that is called by your name. And I'm going to hold you to that deal, God. And Nehemiah then goes before the king and the king says, why in the world are you so downcast? Nehemiah has been crying. And Nehemiah says, the city of my fathers is, is in ruins. It's destroyed. And I want to go back and rebuild. And King Artaxerxes grants him favor and says, go, and here's some materials to do it. And so Nehemiah makes the hundreds of miles of trek. He gets to, to Jerusalem and he looks, and for three days he just surveys the damage, devastated. But on the morning of the third day, he goes to his people and he says, let's rebuild this city. And so for 52 days, all the neighboring villages coming against them and threatening and attacking. And so there's no rest. There's no like, okay, let's go to bed now. For 52 days, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, they start building the wall. Because the wall is what protects the city. We want walls, right? We don't want people to get in, to harm us, to, to loot, to, to vandalize, to do anything. And so they start building this 
wall. 52 days, day and night, exhaustion, fear, worry. And they finally get done. 52 days trying to seek something that would surround them. And with the wall complete, Nehemiah and Ezra call the people together to worship the Lord. And so Jerusalem finally has a chance. Jerusalem finally has a chance. All the people to come together. And this is a serious worship concert. The way that Nehemiah describes this, when the walls are done, the people come together, the people are all raising their hands. They're standing up when the the Word of God is open. They're shouting, Amen, Amen. I mean, this is like Hillsong on steroids, Old Testament style. And then... Nehemiah and Ezra do something really insensitive. They remind the people of their obligation to God. And so they open the Word and they begin explaining the law. This is what your life should look like. This is what you owe to God. And Nehemiah 8.9, Nehemiah and the governor, Ezra the priest and the Levites who taught the people said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And so you have this worship service that goes from all in, arms raised, amen, amen, to now when they hear what their lives should look like, the beauty of what a life looks like when it's yielded to God, and they see how far they fall short and they can't possibly measure up. They'll never be good enough. They'll never hold up their end of the deal with God. And the priests come, say, don't mourn, don't weep. But the people can't help it. Because they've just discovered that their souls, their hearts, are far more irreparably decimated than the city they're seeking to rebuild. But Nehemiah comes and he preaches the Gospel. Then Nehemiah said to him, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here, Nehemiah is looking at a city filled with people who are utterly devastated, weeping and sobbing and mourning. And Nehemiah says, Stop. This day's holy. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I want you to stop for a moment and hear this. This is not referring so many times when you hear that expression, the joy of the Lord, you think of like charismatic dancing. I got the joy of the Lord. Sorry for the dancing. (laughs) Got to be careful up here. But that's a possessive joy. The Lord's Joy is your strength. Do you ever think of God as joyful? When you imagine Him, do you, do you understand that He is utterly joyful? 
And His joy, His delight over you, the fact that when you come to Him, that same God who comes out and surrounds you with His steadfast love and songs of praise, that God of joy who delights in you, that is your strength. This is the infinite, all-powerful, almighty God who delights in you. What else could we need? Do we believe that? You know, in my job as a headmaster, and I've been a teacher, I've taught high schoolers, middle schoolers. I'm not brave enough to teach elementary or preschool, but I've been a headmaster over an elementary and a preschool. But when I have students come to me, it's amazing to me, particularly in the culture that we live in, and we're guilty of this too as adults. It's the Facebook culture. It's the culture that says your life should be this wonderful. Everybody presents this kind of fictional, almost best self that makes the rest of us go, well, I'm not measuring up to that. It's the selfie culture and look how wonderful I am. And it leaves all of us going, well, I don't measure up to that. I don't measure up to that. I don't measure up to that. And this person said that about me. And I feel like I'm not really all that valuable. And so I have students come to me pretty regularly who feel like they're not worth anything because of what their heart feels or what their friend said or, or what they heard on TV or whatever the case might be. And every time, this is a very familiar speech for my students, I'll say, I want you to take your heart and tell it to shut up for a moment. And I want you to take everything that you've ever heard from a friend, an adult, your parent, your mom, your brother, your sister, whoever, and I want you to stack it all up over here, all these things that make you feel worthless, and leave them there for a moment. But over here... I want you to know that the infinite, all-knowing, knows everything about you. All of your flaws, insecurities, all of your ugly spots, your grossest spots. This God who knows all things and is the wisest being of all time, no rival, not even close. When He sets your price tag, He says you are worth the life of His Son. Whose voice do you trust? Friend? Mom? Dad? Your own heart? Your brain? All the insecurities? Facebook? I mean, do you trust them and say, man, I feel like I'm no good? Or do you come over here and trust the wisdom of a God who sings over you and says that you are worth the life of His Son. You are so precious and it has nothing to do with what you do. It's not your performance. It's not how much you build. It's not your walls and your reputation and your money and your everything else that you try to hide behind. No. You are precious because you are in Christ. We look at the story of Nehemiah and I got some sad news for you. There's a, there's a sad ending here. Guess what? That, those walls, they're going to be torn down again. That city is going to be burned down again. That temple is going to be destroyed again. The Jews are going to be let off into exile again. And it leaves you wondering like, well then is all of Nehemiah's efforts in vain? Well, if we judge his life by his work, then yes, 
Nehemiah's life was in vain. But thankfully, we have a hero who is far greater than Nehemiah that floods Nehemiah's life with purpose. This hero, this hero also looked from afar and saw the fallen condition of our city, our world, our souls, and he wept and mourned for our state. This hero was in a palace of royalty, heavenly royalty, and he loved us so much that he would venture away from the comforts of that to come down into our broken world. And like Nehemiah, this greater hero would bear a cup for us. You see, Nehemiah bore a cup for a king and was willing to drink the poison for the king. But here we have the king of kings who comes into this world to be a cupbearer for us, who knows that the cup that he's about to drink is filled with the wrath of God that we deserve, and he drinks it bone dry. This God who in Gethsemane says, I do not want to do this. I don't want to drink this cup. God, please take this cup away from me, but not my will. Yours be done. And then he takes that cup on the cross and he drinks it dry. And for three days, this greater hero is going to survey the devastation of what we've done to our souls. And on the third day, like Nehemiah, he is going to raise be raised in victory and he is going to come to us and he's going to say let's rebuild the city and like all those priests that were out in front of nehemiah looking out at a city that was filled with people in mourning and tears and brokenness we are called his priest who are to go out into the world and to point all of these broken and hurting people to the only one who can wipe away their tears forever the only one who will rush out and surround them with His steadfast love. The only one in whom, whose joy and delight over them, they can finally find strength and freedom from all the ways that the world has been devastating them. He is the one whose joy is our greatest strength and we don't need to hide behind our walls anymore because He is the one who surrounds us and protects us. And He doesn't build with dead stones that will eventually fall all over again. He builds with living ones. Our God delights in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe He sings? Songs of redemption over you when you come to Him in your brokenness. This God who so desperately wants you to leave behind all the other places that you find your identity. So desperately wants you to walk away from anxiety and fear and all your failures and shames and secrets and to come to Him and find your hiding place in Him so that He can delight in knowing that you're finally in the one place where He can keep you safe and loved If you let Him, He will replace all of your weakness and despair with a strength that is sourced by His unshakable joy. And what degree of joy <laughs> does God find in each of you? I want you to hear this. 
God's joy in you is so extreme that when He goes to the cross, it's worth it. You are worth the cross in the sight of God for the joy set before Him. What's that joy? You are. For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And here's the good news. That same God who went to the cross for the joy set before Him now holds that same joy and delight in you reigning from the throne of God, sovereign over your todays and your tomorrows. He has you. And when we realize how radically He delights in us and loves us, then it's about time to stop hiding from God in this broken world and start hiding in Him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank You so much for being our hiding place. You're so amazing. Your love is so extravagant. That even when we come to You with all of our shames and faults and failures and anxieties and fears, Lord, You rejoice. You surround us. You protect us. You renew us. You rejoice. Lord, I pray that You would give each and every one of us the wisdom not to seek our hiding place in the things of this world that can never, ever, ever satisfy or protect us, but that we would thrill Your heart by finding our only hiding place in You. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.